We are in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. I'm going to start today with a story that many of you are not going to believe. But I promise you, this is 100% true. There may be preachers out there, in fact, I know there are, who tell embellished stories and, and make them sound true. This app actually happened, 100% of it, no embellishments, period. So here we go. 16 years old, we had a football game in Luling. How many of you know where Luling is, right? If you've ever been on I-10 to San Antonio, you've passed by. It's close to the Buckies there. Let me just tell you, if you get off and actually go into town, there's a really great barbecue place. Nobody paid me to say this, but Luling City Market, fantastic. Get the sausage, you'll, you'll thank me. But that's not the main thing I think of when I think of Luling. The main thing I think of is the story I'm about to tell you. So we got on the bus, won the game, hooray. Got on the bus, worn out, late at night, the, the coach gets behind the wheel. By the time he gets the engine cranked and we're headed out of town, half the team's already asleep. It's early fall in Texas, so it's hot, so we all have our windows down. By the time we, we head out on that highway, bus is just completely quiet, and that's when, right at the outskirts of town, three things happen in rapid succession. The first thing was we heard this sound. It sounded like a handful of pebbles being thrown at the bus. And at the same time, the exact same time, the second thing was we felt contact. We felt something hit us in the face and in the chest. Something not hard, not painful, but it hit us. The third thing, about a second or two later, we heard one of our teammates in the back scream, ow, oh, it got me in the eye. And then the next thing we know, he's staggering forward on the bus. Coach isn't stopping. I mean, he's got the pedal down. He's, he's going to get back to Yoakum as fast as he can. And, and our teammate is staggering forward with one hand over his face, and he's, he's just got this constant stream of complaint and screaming, it burns, it hurts, it got me. And he gets to the front of the bus, convinces the coach to pull over, and as he does, we hear him say the following words. I don't know what this is, man, but it stinks. It's like it's... It's manure, man. And right then, the lights come on. And we all look down, and sure enough, we've got cow manure all over us. Now, 30 years later, I still don't understand the physics of this. Did they have like a medieval trebuchet in the, uh, in the, in the ditch full of cow poop? Did, did, uh, you know, did someone have this advanced technology with a, a manure gun that someone never told me about? But one way or another, they ambushed us and they got us good. And most of us just had little, little flecks of it. Some guys had bigger chunks, but all of us had it on us. And you can imagine how angry 16 and 17 and 18 year old boys were at this happening to them in the middle of the night. So we're all saying, coach, turn around, let's go find them, which I'm like, come on, right? Think about that. Coach is like, no, we're heading home. We're getting home now. And he puts the pedal down. We head back home. But the whole way home, which is about an hour, one of my teammates, the smallest guy on the team, believe it or not, it wasn't me. It was a guy named Clavon Harris, tough little dude. And the whole way home, he kept yelling, we was doo-dooed. We was doo-dooed. You're awake now, right? Never know what you're going to hear in church. So here's the point. That's life when you're living in a world where most people don't believe what you believe. You're doing your best, hopefully, to live according to the word of God, to represent Christ well. You're not hurting anybody. And suddenly you get doo-dooed, right? Suddenly just somebody out of nowhere just ambushes you and, and hits you. And you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. Your, your gut reaction is to turn around and seek revenge. But what I want to talk to you about today is how to keep pressing forward in the midst of that. So 
this is the fourth of the, of the seven churches we're gonna look at in, that were the original recipients of the book of Revelation. And in chapters two and three, Jesus actually has a personal note for each one of those congregations. And like I've said throughout this series, we're not used to thinking congregationally. A lot of Christians think, well, that's the pastor's job. He thinks about the church. I just, I just have to worry about me. What I wanna say to you, and I hope what this, what this series is helping you understand is, all of us are responsible for what happens in this church. Once you join this church, you may be saying, nobody told me that when I joined. Once you join this church, you are committing to the body of Christ in this little branch and you're saying, I'm going to identify with these people. They are my people. What happens here, it reflects on me. And so understand that these words that Paul wrote, that, that Jesus dictated through John 2,000 years ago, you need to apply them to us and see what needs to change in us, all right? So verse 18 of chapter two. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So one way to understand this letter is it's, it's really written to two different churches that met in the same house. Continue, I mean, you have to remind yourself when you talk about churches in the first century, the first three centuries, you're not talking about anything similar to what we have today. There weren't these big church campuses with multiple buildings. There weren't church buildings at all. This was a group of people who met in someone's home, maybe from different houses, maybe in different houses from week to week, but it was a small group. Everyone knew everyone. But within that group, there were two distinct camps. And the larger of the two groups had been drawn astray by this woman that Jesus calls Jezebel. Now, I am very certain that that wasn't her actual name. Nobody in the first century is gonna name his little girl Jezebel just like no one today is gonna name their little boy Adolf. Jezebel was one of the great villains of the Old Testament. In the time of Elijah and Elisha, she, uh, she was married to King Ahab and her mission in life was to wipe out the worship of Yahweh in Israel. She put a, a personal hit out on every prophet of the Lord evil, evil woman. And so what Jesus is doing by calling this woman Jezebel in Thyatira is he's saying, this woman does the same thing. She's, she's trying to steer people away from worshiping me into worshiping something that is false. 
In verse 24, he, he describes her teaching as the deep things of Satan. And this could be one of two things. Some people think it's, it's basically Jesus using parody or satire or sarcasm because it, maybe Jezebel was like a lot of false teachers in those days and even today who said, okay, yeah, there's people who tell you part of the gospel, but I'll tell you the full truth. I'll tell you the secret stuff, the deep things of God. And Jesus is saying, not only does she not have the deep things of God, she's really teaching you the deep things of the devil. But there's another interpretation. I like this one. See, in Romans 6.1, Paul talks about there was a, a way of thinking back in the early days of the, of the church that said, well, if God's grace forgives any sin, then the best way to make the grace of God abound is to sin even more, which sounds ludicrous to us. But it's amazing how deceptive such teaching can be. And so maybe the deep things of Satan was this woman saying, listen, if we wanna see God's grace abound and do great things, we need to plumb the depths of Satan. We need to do all the worst sins that society has invented. We need to experience it all so we can experience grace. Jesus makes some serious warnings to them. And, and it, let's be honest, it's hard for us to square our image of Jesus with what we read here and in other places in the Bible because we think of Jesus as this super chill guy who, who never got angry and never got upset and never judged anyone and always just accepted everyone the way they were. And yet here he's saying, I'm gonna throw this woman onto a sickbed. I'm gonna destroy her followers. I'm going to kill her children. He's not talking, I'm sure, about her physical children, but the people who believe in her teaching. But even so, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that Jesus would be that angry. And yet, think about it this way. The gentlest person in this room, whoever that person might be, if, if thugs broke into that person's house and were gonna harm that person's family, they probably wouldn't hesitate to use lethal force to defend themselves. And all of us would back them up on that. Jesus right here is backing up. He's defending his family because we as the church of God, capital C, the church of God, all those who preach and teach and believe in his name, we are his family. We're his sons and daughters. Not only that, but there are thousands of people out there who won't be reached if we don't reach them, if we don't share the gospel with them. And so if we turn aside to a false gospel, they won't hear the gospel from us. And so Jesus has a tremendous stake in punishing false teaching. And that's what he's saying here. Wrath is coming on this woman and those who follow her. And you might say, oh, two things I need to share with you before we move on. First of all, verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent. That's instructive because it, what it says to me is somebody, maybe the pastor of that church, maybe John himself, had gone to this woman and said, you've got to stop. You're leading people in the wrong direction and, and, and God will not let this continue. She had a warning and this is consistent with what I see in the scripture. God did not pour out wrath indiscriminately. God's wrath came after people were warned, after people knew they were doing wrong and yet chose to continue doing wrong anyway. And the second thing I want you to see is verse 23 when he says, so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And what this tells us is when God punishes, it's never just for our own sake. It's for the sake of all those who see us and know us. It's a warning. And so you and I need to understand that when we are under the discipline of God. And we need to understand that when we see other people struggling and suffering because of bad decisions they've made. Let that be a lesson to us. Don't go down that road. 
Now, you might say, okay, well, what does this have to do with us? Frankly, I don't think we're that church. I don't think we're the church that has followed after Jezebel because I don't know of anything like that happening in our church right now. And I think I would know. And I don't, honestly, I don't think I've ever been a part of a church where there was someone like that with that kind of influence. Thank God. But there's another church within the church at Thyatira, a smaller group. And Jesus describes them this way. In verse 24, he says, now to the rest of you. Those of you who haven't plumbed the depths of Satan with Jezebel and her followers, just imagine being part of that, that little remnant of people who said, I know she's inviting us to these parties where they do these disgusting things, but I'm not going. Just imagine how left out you might have felt, how, how abandoned, isolated, alone. There's just a handful of you in this church. And remember, it's not like you could say, okay, well, obviously First Baptist is no good. I'm gonna go down the street to First Methodist or West Conroe or the Ark or First Presbyterian or Sacred Heart. Those things didn't exist. There was one church, one church in a town. If you were in a church that was heading in the wrong direction, your only recourse was to say, I've gotta fight for the gospel. I gotta stay and fight the good fight against my own fellow church members. And that's what Jesus is telling them to do. His verdict for the remnant is, Hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold fast. Don't give up. Don't turn around. Don't seek vengeance. Keep pressing forward. Keep doing what I've called you to do. See, the reason why this is relevant for us is because we're a remnant. Anybody who is a faithful, Bible-believing, church-attending, Jesus-following Christian today is part of a shrinking minority in this country. And I don't mean to paint things as dire. And believe me, I don't mean to make it sound like things were so much better 50 years ago. Because there, was, there were plenty of problems in this country 50 years ago, some of which we have worked toward solving. But in my own lifetime, and even in the time I've been in ministry, which is just over half my life, I've seen the, the spiritual temperature of our nation change quite a bit. I've seen that there's a much greater resistance to the Christian message, period, than there was when I first started preaching. Much, much more of a sense of uh, when you share the gospel, when you quote scripture, when you say you believe, the response you get is very different than it once was. There's much more of a, a anything goes sexual ethic in our culture today. That has always existed, but now it's celebrated. Now, in fact, it's if you don't celebrate what I believe and practice, you are the bad guy. There is much more of a sense of, of anger and, and skepticism towards the institution of the church than there once was. And I know in some ways we've brought that upon ourselves. Different churches, different denominations have had their own scandals, including us as Southern Baptists. There, there's plenty of evidence of hypocrisy among us. Yes, we've brought some of this on ourselves and yet it's more than that. We are part of a remnant and we don't, we don't, we're not, we're not walking with the wind anymore. We're going against the wind of culture and it's hard. And, and so in a couple of weeks, when we get into September, I'm going to start a new series once this series is over and it's called Grit. And it's about how to hold on, how to, how to be, how to have endurance, how to have steadfastness. The, the scriptures are replete with those commands. It comes up over and over again in the New Testament. Hold on, stand firm, endure, be steadfast. And it's because Jesus knows how hard it is to be a minority, how hard it is to be part of a faithful remnant. 
And I know some of you feel that more than others. Some of us who are a little older, we can get to a point in life where we can kind of segregate ourselves along with people who think like us, especially in this part of the country where things are still a little more Bible beltish than they once were or, or than they are in other parts of the country. And so we can put ourselves in a little bubble where we never hear from people who don't agree with us, convince ourselves that things haven't changed. But if you're on a high school campus, if you're on a, even a junior high campus, certainly if you're going to college, you know what I'm talking about. You know that sense that it's hard to be faithful when very few of my friends are, even some of those who claim to be, are not. It's very, very difficult. It's so much easier to just give in and be like everyone else. Some of you work in workplaces where the pressure is hard. I had a friend who was an offshore oil worker, so every two weeks he would go out for two weeks and then he'd come back and he'd tell me, Jeff, you don't know how hard it is to be a Christian and to live like a Christian on that rig. Just the fact that I don't, I don't cuss and that I don't have uh, you know, pornographic pictures on my locker, guys think there's something wrong with me and I catch flack for it. Some of you have family members friends, neighbors, coworkers who pressure you about your faith, about your belief system. It is hard to be part of that remnant. And by the way, before we get into the last, the, 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 the how-to, when we say, hold on, I don't just mean don't stop believing, okay? Journey didn't write this sermon, all right? Um, Google it, millennials. So, um, <laughs> It's not just about holding on to true doctrine, it's about continuing to represent Christ with boldness and humility. It's about holding on to what it means to be a light, be a light to the world. It's holding on to the hope of eternal life. It's holding on to joy in the midst of troubled circumstances. It's holding on to an attitude that says, you hit me, I'll forgive you, I won't hit you back. It's holding on to compassion for people who will never help you once you've helped them. It's holding on to that daily pursuit of righteousness instead of being content to just be who you are, constantly desiring to be more like Jesus. It's holding on to all those things that you were taught to do as a disciple, but it's so much easier just to give it up. Now, how do we do that? See, uh, let me just say this. When, when I was in my first church, the church I grew up in, I, I later became pastor of. And this is a little bitty church out in the country. And, and so on Sunday evenings, we had Sunday night church back then. And especially after time change, my wife was smart. And so she would always turn on the porch light when we walked across the road. Because we lived in a little parsonage about 50 yards from the church building. When we'd walk across the road, she'd flip on the porch light so that when church was over, we'd have a light to let us get home, right? Well, one weekend, Carrie was visiting her parents. I forgot to turn on that light. And so when church was over and it was dark, I walked outside and it was so dark, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. You see, I'd, been a, I'd become a city boy. I'd spent four years in college and three years in seminary, Houston and then Fort Worth. And so seven years in the city, you forget how dark it gets in the country when there's no moon out. And so I'm walking and I'm like, uh-oh, I don't know where my house is. Now I know the general direction, but I also know there's a couple of ditches between me and the house. And so I could very well stumble into one of those and break my stupid neck. And that would be an embarrassing story. And so I literally, no one was there, pitch dark. So I got down on my hands and knees and started to crawl. And, I, and then after a couple of seconds, I thought, well, you moron, there's, there's copperheads. So I got back up and I started walking very, very slowly. And I, I made it obviously, but 
But think about that, that picture because most of the people we know are stumbling in the dark. Some of them have realized it, but all of them are. And they can't come home unless they see a light. Guess who's called to be the light of the world? Look at Matthew 5, that's us. We are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. He wasn't talking about you individually. He was talking about us collectively. We're the light. If we're not shining that light, if we're not showing the world something distinct, they won't come home. So we have to hold on, not just for our sakes, but for their sake. So how do we hold on? Again, I'm gonna have a whole series on this subject, but I wanna give you three, I wanna remind you of three tools you have right now to hold on to what you have. Number one is the word of God. I'm glad you come. I'm glad you come and listen and, and listen to me preach and you all stay awake and you know, if you fall asleep, I'll call you out in the sermon, so just know that, just kidding. But you're all really good to listen and, and do your best to apply it, but I hope this isn't the only time you're getting the word of God into your system. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to, your, to my feet and to light unto my path a light into my path. I hope you don't just have a light in your life once a week. I hope you've got the light of Christ showing you the way every single day. Ephesians 6 says that we face unseen forces of evil that are seeking to destroy us. And God's given us all the armor we need to defeat those unseen forces. And you read that Ephesians 6 and it talks about all the armor of God that you need to put on. You know the only weapon you have, the only offensive weapon you have is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. You're gonna go into a war zone without your weapon? Read God's word and apply it to your life. I don't say what I'm about to say because I'm a prophet or I know what I'm talking about. I just believe that in a room this size with this many professing Christians in it, there are probably a handful, if not more Christians who if they were honest would say, yeah, Jeff, I know I'm not living according to the word of God in this area of my life. Maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your sexuality, maybe it's, maybe it's your refusal to forgive somebody, maybe it's your refusal to treat someone with love who's treated you with hatred, maybe it's your gossiping or, or your language or your thoughts or who knows what. But there are people in this room, I am sure, just statistically, it's, it's bound to be the, the case. There are people in this room that today need to say, starting today, I'm gonna start actually conforming my life to the word of God because otherwise, you'll fall away. You will fall away. Number two, there's the body of Christ. That's us. Not just First Baptist. I hope y'all know that by now. I don't believe First Baptist is the only church that preaches the word of God and has the Holy Spirit. There are churches all across this country, this county, this city, but God brought you here. And I'm glad because I love this church. But understand something. There is a tendency within the body of Christ, within God's people to say, I don't need that. Hebrews 10, 25 is one I quote a lot. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Even 2000 years ago, there was a tendency to say, I mean, this is a generation after Jesus to say, yeah, I know what the Bible says. and I know what I believe. I don't need to go gather with other Christians and sing songs and pray and listen to sermons and give it an offer. I mean, why do I need that? I'll, I've got other things on my plate. Just understand that temptation is there. So if, if you are a, a member of this church already, get involved. Find your group. 
Invest in people and let them invest in you. Find your ministry. It may be something that happens Sunday morning. It may be something that happens Monday through Saturday out there in the world. But find your role, the reason God put you here. You are part of the body. Think about it. If your elbow quits working, your body is hurting. If, if somebody cuts off your hand, you have a hard time from head to toe and your hand dies. Cut off from the body, you make us less, but you die. And guys, I'm speaking specifically to our teenagers, when God leads you somewhere else, and many of you will go somewhere else at some point, find a church. Wherever you go, find a church. It's worth the effort and get involved there. We're not gonna be mad when we find out that you've joined another church in some other city. We're gonna rejoice because we know that you're still following Christ faithfully. You need the body of Christ because that's how you stay faithful. That's how you hold on to what you have. And then number three, the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest tool we have. The spirit of the living God living inside of us, empowering us, instructing us, convicting us of sin, encouraging us. Back in February of 2013, there was a cruise ship out in the Gulf of Mexico, the Carnival Triumph. Some of you remember this. They had a fire in the engine room and the whole ship went dead. No power whatsoever. And I remember hearing about this on the news. I didn't know that some members of my church were on the ship. I heard about this on the news and I thought, man, if you ever had to be stranded somewhere, being stranded in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico in a cruise ship, that sounds pretty good to me. That just means you get a longer vacation than you planned, right? And then, and then my church members came back and they told me what it was actually like. They said, you know, once the power goes out, your toilets don't flush anymore. Think about that for a moment. Air conditioning's done. Remember, out there in the Atlantic, even in February, it's, it's very hot. And the food spoils within a day or two. So the smell in any indoor area is unbearable, but the temperatures are too hot for you to stay outside for more than an hour or two. So you've got nowhere to go. You are just miserable. So think about it this way. A cruise ship like that, I'm told, I've never actually been, but it has everything you need to have a great vacation. You've got great food and plenty of it. You've got entertainment around the clock. You've got a tropical setting. You've got everything you need, but without power, it's a nightmare. Without power, you can't wait to get off that boat. In fact, the, the couple that was on that boat that was members of my church when they were telling me about it, the woman started crying. She's just like, it was too traumatic. And that's a picture of us as Christians. Because look at First Baptist Conroe. Look at the people in this room. Look at us. We have every advantage. There's no excuse for us not to live lives so outstanding and so distinctive that we draw people to Christ. We have everything we could possibly need. But without the power of the Holy Spirit, we will repel them from the gospel. We will disgust people. And they will say, I want anything but what those people have. So my challenge to you is to spend time with him every day and say, Lord, I need you. We need you. Every morning to say, Lord, before I go out into the world, give me your power and your guidance and your wisdom or I will disgrace you. Otherwise, I want to draw people to you. Sunday mornings, I hope you're praying. Maybe even Saturday night, Lord, use us, shape us, empower us, make us a church that draws people in like a city on a hill. That's what it's gonna take. And that, and that is how you hold on. Through the word of God and through the body of Christ and through the Holy Spirit. And some of you this morning need to make a commitment. Some of you maybe need to, 
give your heart to Christ for the very first time. In just a moment when we sing, I'm gonna be standing right there ready to receive you. If you wanna make that commitment in front of this body of believers who will rejoice, and that's nothing compared to the rejoicing of the angels in heaven when you give your heart to Christ. For some of you, today should be that day. Don't leave without it being that day. For others, maybe it's more like, I know I'm saved, but I know there's an area of my life I need to hand over to the Lord. And maybe God's calling you even to make that a public commitment. Maybe, maybe some of you need to join this church today. You've been thinking about it. You've been messing around with it. Today's the day you need to commit. Or maybe, maybe you just need to make a commitment in your own heart that says, Lord, I'm gonna start calling on you every morning before I start my day. I need your Holy Spirit. I need your power to fill me. I need for you to be in charge and not me. See, this is how we hold on to what we have. And don't ever forget, the reason you're saved is because at the very moment when Christ should have dropped you, when he should have thrown you away, he held on. He held on to what he had in you. And he carried you up that hill and he nailed your sin to the cross. And he died and your sin died with it. And that, and that is why you and I are saved.